The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. Hi, I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's Editor-in-Chief. Welcome to a new version of This Is Working. Our show offers the leaders of today an opportunity to share their knowledge with the leaders of tomorrow. Each episode of our podcast draws from a live conversation I had on LinkedIn. You'll hear top takeaways alongside analysis and a deeper dive from me and my colleague, Nina Melendez. Hey, Nina. Hey, Dan. Dan, today's a special day. It's maybe the most special day. <laughs> it's your birthday. It is, Nina. It is my birthday. I had uh, this morning kids excitement in the household over the birthday. But, you know, for the most part, no one gets more excited about my birthday, uh-huh. apparently, than people on social media. The uh-huh. amount of birthday greetings I've been getting on LinkedIn, on Instagram, on uh, Twitter, it just the, the world loves telling people happy birthday. And I love hearing it. Don't get me wrong. It's it's been amazing. But some of these people I've never I have never met before in my life. And they're wishing me happy birthday. It's very sweet. So there are two camps of people when it comes to birthdays. There are those who are like, oh, I don't want to make a big deal. Like, it's not that big of a deal. And then there's others who really take, like, it's a milestone and it's important and special. I'm very much the first. The first. Yes. I would always prefer for it to just kind of, the day happens. It's nice. Really? And then we move on. Yeah, (gasps) absolutely. Interesting. Yeah. See, I was born December 24th. Oh. So my whole life I've had to compete (laughs) With Jesus. Yeah, that's <laughs> so hard. So any time that I can celebrate my birthday, I just like love to do it. Mine is the Ides of March. And so for people who are diehard Julius Caesar fans, I get overshadowed. Uh-huh. But there's just not that many There's not them. that many. No. <laughs> the Ides of March. <laughs> it's big. That's so esoteric. <laughs> so, Dan, you know, a great sort of early birthday present for you— <laughs> was that you got to chat with Christine Lagarde last week, president of the ECB. Madame Lagarde has been in industries that have just been completely dominated by men. She's been the first in many cases throughout her career journey. She was the first female chairperson at international law firm Baker McKenzie. She was France's first female finance minister. She was also the managing director of the IMF. Yep, the International Monetary Fund. Yep, and that job meant that she was entrusted with the stability of the global monetary system at the hardest possible time, which was the global financial crisis. And right now she's busy leading the European Central Bank, which is, again, another first for a woman. She's been tasked with the challenge of controlling inflation as the EU recovers from the pandemic's impact. She is such a strong voice on women's issues. She's always has been. This is one of the things that she talks about. You'll hear more from her in this conversation. Um, And she's just passionate about the subject. And is not just passionate, she has lived through it. She has lived experiences. So we'll talk about how she's used her own power to affect change. Let's go to the tape. When I was appointed and when I was approved by the European Parliament, I asked for two special exemptions. I said, I will focus my energy and my effort on monetary policy and my compass will be price stability. But bear in mind that if you elect me to be president of the ECB, I will want to continue talking about women, gender equality and equity, and I will want to talk about climate change. 
And that is something that was granted to me. So I feel very comfortable talking about this issue of how does the economy work for women at the moment? Ever since COVID, I believe that women have been more exposed, more vulnerable, and more victim of the current economic situation. If you look back at early 2019, when COVID hit, you remember we were talking about those on the front line. Many of those on the front line were women. We were talking about kids being at home and everybody being locked down. Who was looking after kids? Who was looking after the elderly? Who was trying to keep some sort of balance in this very, very strange, disturbed way of living? It was the woman. In those days, pretty much across the world, there was more domestic violence. Who were the victims? Women. Because education was uh, restrained during the COVID period, a lot of kids actually miss out school. Well, guess what? Those that missed out most and did not catch up were little girls. I love that she had the courage to say, unless I can do this, then I'm not the right person for this job. I thought it was super impressive. To me, that is, and I'm glad that she talked about that, because that tells other people that it's okay to take stances like that. Yep. It's one thing to take the stance. It's another thing to explain I've taken this stance. I think that she was able to do that because she has put so much equity behind her name. And that comes after, I think, years of just being a certain type of person that you can walk into a room and you can say, these are my non-negotiables. Yeah. You have to know yourself mm-hmm. really well and you have to be known very well. Yeah. Um, and, and Christine obviously has both of those. But I think there's a lot for when you get to a certain point in your career, if you are being hired into a job like Christine was, where you were in demand, they wanted her yeah. in this position. That's your point where you could say, I'm now going to use some of my goodwill yeah. to be able to say, these are non-negotiables for me. Yeah. I remember being really young in my career and wanting to have that. And I think actually maybe making some mistakes, like coming into a room and being like, these are my non-negotiables. And people were just like, Nina, sit down. <laughs> like right. what Christine Lagarde did And I think what I'm just so impressed of is that this, it's earned. There's another part to it also, though, is that if you have non-negotiables, it's helpful that those are ones that other people in the room want you to be non-negotiable about. I guarantee you there were people who were part of that commission who were sitting, listening to her talk about this and said, thank God she's saying this. Yeah. You are speaking my voice. And I think that that is, if you come into a job interview and you say, One of my non-negotiables is I will never work on Thursdays and you have to have, you know, (laughs) uh, coffee with sweetener ready for me as soon as I walk in. That's you're not going to get the job. Right. But if you come in and you say, I want to be able to speak publicly about X issue and that issue is important to the industry you're going into or the company you're working for, they're probably going to be pretty excited or at least some percentage of the room is going to say, yeah, we've always wanted someone to do this. We're glad to hear you saying it. You're advancing the ball in a way that we wish others had advanced the ball before you. Was there a question that you didn't get to ask her, Dan, that you wish you did? There were a number of them. When you only have a half hour, you got to pick carefully. Uh, We didn't really get a chance to talk about mentorship. She talked a lot about the issues of uh, women and girls and uh, education and getting ahead. And I just want to know what she is doing personally on these subjects. Does she mentor? How does she mentor? How many people does she bring in? Does she teach other people how to mentor? Does she talk at schools? You know, what's the process? Uh, she has done so much. She's seen so much. She has so much experience and knowledge. She has incredible connections and an amazing network, I'm sure. 
How does she use that to help this cause that she's so passionate about? I was reading through the comments during the live, and I will say that for the most part, her fans turned out for this interview. Member Michelle Martinez wrote, women leaders are often more adept at convincing, teaming, and partnering. And then it was almost like Christine Lagarde spoke directly to that point because she talked about the role of female leadership during the pandemic and how important female leadership was. Let's take a listen. During the COVID period, women in leadership position were more trusted, uh, had um, a better reach to people that were able to demonstrate more empathy and sympathy. And that was recognized as a good set of uh, skills or inequalities that could help lead in times of deep crisis and, and huge questioning about the future of, of our lives. So it, it's, it was demonstrated by the trust that was uh, given to those uh, female leaders. Look at, uh, for instance, the, uh, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, uh, Jacinda Ahern. She really uh, epitomizes, in my view, that set of skills that have helped her lead her country in difficult and troubled times. That's not only COVID, but also a terrible terrorist attack uh, at the time. There were other female leaders that, that demonstrated uh, similar, similar skill sets. It's not to renege on what men can demonstrate as well. I think that there are men who can demonstrate this often associated to female uh, skills uh, as well. I think that there, any, during any times of crisis, it's an opportunity for new people uh, to show expertise or to show leadership in a way that maybe they didn't have that opportunity to do before. I was listening to a podcast this morning about the uh, war in Ukraine, and there was a business leader on there talking about how many women are now running tech companies in Ukraine and, and are getting promoted in Ukraine as one of these examples of like, you just have to turn to whoever's great and you have to change how you are doing business in times of crisis. And what we have, what we saw in COVID, I think, was women saying enough of these, whatever preconceptions you had about uh, who should run a company or run a country, you just need to have someone in charge who's great. And I'm great at what I do. And so that that was one of the the takeaways of this was the pandemic opened the door because the world just stopped and suddenly we needed leadership. And women fill that role in incredible ways. And specifically to COVID, I mean, women tend to be a little bit more compassionate and understanding, which was what we needed during hmm. the pandemic. Yeah. One of the, the things I was struggling with during this interview mm -hmm. was this entire portion around women in leadership mm -hmm. and the points of women being great in times of crisis and of what you just mentioned about women being more maybe sensitive or um, or empathetic, because there's also a downside to that. And mm -hmm. we have seen the uh, idea of the glass cliff of companies or economies that are in trouble and a woman being put in to lead that and really being set up for failure. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of saying, well, women are amazing in crisis and women are empathetic, I think it all it worries me that that is also putting them into a box. Mm -hmm. And it also means that you could say like, well, we're going to wait till we have a crisis before we put a woman in. And you by now, you also are playing this at the very hardest level. Yeah. Our company's going under. Let's see if you can save it. If you can't <laughs> save it, sorry, you're yeah. no, no, no loss. You're expendable anyways. Yeah. And so that's the kind of like, it did worry me as she talks about like women in crisis that 
it does paint women, female leaders, into a corner. I have often seen uh, women uh, being selected, promoted, um, and advocated as leaders uh, when when it's a mess. I, I have experienced that myself, I tell you. Uh, when, when I was uh, encouraged to take the leadership at Baker McKenzie as chairman of the firm uh, globally, the situation was very messy. Uh, there were lots of things that were completely out of control from a budget point of view. Uh, there were dissensions uh, within the institution. Uh, partners were at a loss as to whether or not there was really a vision. And, and then, surprise, surprise, why don't we ask a woman to do the job? Um, later on, I, I had a similar experience where everybody wanted to, well, not everybody, but some people wanted to take my job as Minister of Finance for France until such time when the financial crisis hit. And at that point in time, there were not so many volunteers to take the job because it was just pretty tough and, and you could only... Um, you know, take take a take a blow out of uh, of of that situation. So it's often the case that when it's messy, when it's hard, when you run out of options, the establishment thinks, "Why don't we call a woman? Not much to lose." Well, it so happens that often women actually make the case that they can do it, even when it's a mess. You know, Dan, I really loved that you asked her about this because. This can sound a little conspiracy theorist, like, oh, sure, you put the woman in charge when the ship was sinking, and then it's kind of easy to blame her when it hits the bottom of the ocean floor, right? But she did not respond in a conspiracy way at all. She said, no, this is very true, and this happens, and I've seen it happen over and over again. And I love that she that she said that happens. Absolutely. The other part is she clearly has such belief in women leaders. Like, she understands that the glass cliff exists, but she's also like, yes, but we're going to take off on this glass cliff and a glass elevator and things are going to then move up from there. I mean, I think that she has such a believer in the importance and the role of women uh, leaders that the glass cliff's not going to stop her. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, more on my conversation with Christine Lagarde. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. 
I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. You know, Dan, we got a lot of great member comments for this interview. And I want to bring up one by Adriana Vulas. And she had a really good question. She asked... What would you suggest as one action that each of us could do to change this inequality? Dan, what do you think? I think there's a lot that we can do. There's a lot that's under your control. There's a lot that's not under your control. I think as a manager, I think about this all the time, is how do you just make sure that you are promoting women, that you are giving uh, women on your team the opportunity to be sponsored and to uh, have mentors? And that you are taking a really critical view of your own efforts, that you're promoting equity within your team. That's something directly that you can do. Christine, however, has a much more well thought through uh, viewpoint on exactly what can be done in terms of government and individuals to make sure that uh, we are stopping the inequality. She talks about the four L's, law, learning, labor, and leadership. I think we should listen to Christine talk us through it herself. The first one is the law. There are still many countries around the globe where the law itself, whether it's the constitution or, or the law or secondary legislation, includes discriminatory provisions that are setting women aside. So that's number one. The second L for me is learning. Investing in girls' education, making sure that there is access to knowledge and, and to education for a decent period of time for all girls is also critically important. There was a G7 meeting back in Canada about four years ago where all the advanced economies committed to do at least seven years of education for all girls. I think that needs to be delivered upon. My third L is labor. The labor market has to be accessible to all women. And any discrimination, any gender gap that is translating into salary differences has to be filled. I think, you know, the Secretary General of the United Nations just recently indicated that if we carry on the way we do, it will take 300 years to close that gap. Well, we have to be better than that. We have to close that gap at a much faster pace. And my final L is leadership. We still today, despite some progress granted, we still today see too few women in leadership position. That is true in parliament, in politics, in corporate world, and pretty much across the board. So if we focus on those four L's, fix the law, make sure that there is no discrimination and that equality is restored so that there can be equity for all genders. If we make sure that there is education and that learning is available, if we make sure that the uh, labor market is accessible and the salary gap in particular, but the opportunity gap as well is filled and leadership is available and uh, can be uh, demonstrated by women who want it, I think we will have made huge progress. 
my main thought is that it's so high level. And sometimes when we talk about equality or inequality, laws are great, of course. But what can we do at a granular level to really close the gap? And I think that's also what I really appreciate about Adriana Vulas's question, where she was asking one action that each of us could do. Yeah, I thought that the four L's were a great framework, but it was hard to go from framework to execution. Right. But I could also see a world where there is one person or one government entity who is in charge of every one of those L's. Hmm. And you're like, how are we doing on laws? How are we doing on labor? How are we doing on leadership? And if you have someone who's directly accountable and you have some way to measure it, I do think you can move all of those areas. So I think it's a great framework. The next step is to figure out how to enact that framework. I think that's a tough part, but Christine has given the map to be able to get there. Was there anything that happened off air that uh, that was sort of fun that you might want to share? You know, these interviews, sometimes the best conversations happen before we start rolling. And it was fun to watch. First of all, Christine went, and I went back and forth on what I was supposed to call her. Madam President, Madame Lagarde, and her team was pretty – they said, you should probably just ask her. So – I asked her and she said, call me, I don't know, President Lagarde at the beginning and then you can call me Christine after, but only if I can call you Dan. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, you can absolutely call me Dan. Um, and she, she also mentioned that her kids were watching, which I thought was really cool. Oh, that's fun. She did, actually did that in the live show. Yeah. She said, can, you can, call, can I call you Dan and you can call me Christine? <laughs> I think it's really nice that, that she asked so That was so nice. Right. It immediately melted the ice. It makes me think, should I have insisted on, on a title? You know, Editor Dan? Next time. <laughs> Editor-in-chief. <laughs> um, she's so poised and elegant. Yeah. Do you think that that's something that's learned or innate? I just assumed it was a French thing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> now that you've heard this conversation with Christine Lagarde, what's on your mind? What are you looking to learn more about and why? Let us know on LinkedIn using the hashtag ThisIsWorking. Or send us your voice. Make a voice memo on your cell phone and email it to us at thisisworking at linkedin.com. You might hear your voice in an upcoming episode. If you're interested in hearing more from Christine Lagarde, be sure to check out Dan's full interview with her on LinkedIn News. We'll drop a link to it in the show notes. This Is Working is a LinkedIn editorial production. Our production team includes Sarah Storm, Candace Weiner, Stephen Valdivia, and Lolia Briggs. Asafki Drone mixes our show. Enrique Montalvo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Our head of original programming is Courtney Coop. I'm Nina Melendez. And I'm Dan Roth, LinkedIn's editor-in-chief. Be well and stay curious. <laughs>